This is the Christian Heritage London podcast from London. Well, it's a real privilege for me to be sitting here with Dr. Peter Lightheart, who is a native of Alabama, which is right outside of London. In fact, it's not even in this country. Is that right? <laughs> That's right. Uh, good to be here, Ben. Thank yeah. you very much for having me. Excellent. And what, what's the temperature like in, uh, in Alabama at this time of year? It was uh, about the same temperature as London uh, the last couple of days. Right. Um, London has been unusually warm, I think, since mm. I've been visiting, and I'm, I feel responsible for that, bringing, <laughs> bringing some of the southern warmth down to uh, across the Atlantic. Uh, it, yeah, we're, we're warming up, though. We'll, we'll be well into the 80s Fahrenheit as a norm and, or the 90s over the summer. That's, oh, that's, uh, that's our normal temperature. Just to, just to clarify, I'm not a, probably tell this from my accent, I'm not an Alabama native. I live there now. Uh, my wife is from the south, but... Uh, I, I, and I've lived a lot of my adult life in the South, but my uh, uh, my home country is the American Midwest in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Right, warmer going south, so you've... It is, yeah, that's <laughs> right. So I grew up around snow and... Uh, oh, really? Yeah. No, really good. Yeah. Yes, we love... But when the blue sky appears over London, London looks like it's framed mm. by a blue sky. It looks yeah. best. That yeah, we've had beautiful weather since we've been here. It's, uh, yeah. And it is a beautiful city. Yeah. Now, you, of course, are director of the Theopolis Ministry there in the United States. Yes. And you are someone who has studied not only at Westminster Seminary, but also at Cambridge University in this that's, country. That's right. And when you were studying at Westminster, who are some of the people you were around? Who are you contemporary with? Who yeah. was teaching? Richard Gaffin uh-huh. uh, was teaching New Testament and uh, probably had the most profound impact on me while I was there. Uh, Vern Poitras mm. also had uh, a profound impact on the way I approached Scripture. Uh, Described sitting through a class by Vern Poitras as a, a kind of brain surgery or he would uh, be reforming my synapses as I was listening to him. Wow. Uh, new ways of approaching scripture, new ways of thinking about virtually everything, and a very creative thinker. Mm. So those are, those are probably the two that mm. had the most impact. I had a number of classes with Sinclair Ferguson, mm. who was uh, just a wonderful, wonderful man, very pastoral professor at the, at the seminary. Mm-hmm. Worth it just to step into his class to listen to him pray at the beginning of the class. That oh, was, really? Wow. That was a, a spiritual charge by itself, and before he even began teaching, just a, a, a wonderful, pious, old Scottish Reformed theologian. Mm. Uh, so I appreciated Professor Ferguson a lot. Mm. I was there in the mid-90s, uh, not sorry, the mid-80s, and uh, one of my theological heroes, uh, Cornelius Van Til, uh, was still alive when I got to Philadelphia to attend seminary. He died while I was there, but I had several opportunities to uh, visit him he was quite old and uh, not really frail. He was a, came from old farming stock and still was quite robust and strong. But his mind was a little bit, a little bit wandering. But uh, I remember going with a South African friend to visit him at his home and uh, asked him about some of his early theological battles. And it was like he was right back in the middle of them. Oh, wow. He got very, very animated and uh-huh. uh, very precise and... Uh, those were still very real to him, mm-hmm. but it, that was a great privilege to have the chance to meet uh, Van Til a few times. Mm. Interesting to hear you talk about um, the prayers of Ferguson. I've, I've heard, I think it was Ed Clowney said that he once sat down with John Murray, mm. and when he sat down with John Murray, he arrived with a problem, but then John Murray said, let's pray, 
and by the time they'd finished praying, it was as though he had seen the problem in another perspective. Mm. It was mm. as though John Murray had taken him into a... Prayed him out of his problem. Well, yeah. that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. which is an extraordinary... It's wonderful to hear of these men of uh, precision being men of uh, grace as well as truth. Yeah, uh, and I found that uh, generally true in my seminary experience. I, was, I wasn't warned against seminary. I wasn't in a church that was anti-intellectual at all. But I was warned that it would be a spiritually dry time for me. I would be intellectually challenging, but not spiritually challenging or refreshing. And perhaps because of the way I'm put together, I'm a, a theologian, I get spiritually challenged by intellectual pursuits. But I found seminary a, a very spiritually enriching time, as mm. well as intellectually. And a large part of that was due to the uh, faithfulness and piety of the of the professors. So you came from, uh, did you come from a believing home? How did you come to hear the gospel yourself in the first place? Yeah, I did come from a, a believing home. I grew up in a Lutheran church. Uh, Lightheart is a German name. And uh, as far back as I can trace, my family is uh, Lutherans, uh, German Protestants of some sort. And we've been able to trace branches of the family to their coming to the U.S. Every branch that we have traced uh, came in the late 19th century came from different parts of Germany, and then some relatives have traced back further. I suspect that uh, my family's Christian roots go back to the Reformation or before, and I haven't found any break in that. Uh, so I grew up in a, a very strong Bible-believing Lutheran church. My parents, both very sound Christians, and raised us as Christians. My father was a medical doctor and uh, had, at some point early in his adulthood, had come to the point where he wanted to he, he was ch facing a decision about whether to go into ministry or into medical practice, and he chose to go into medical practice. But as I talked to him today, he's 97 now, uh, still in good health. And uh, as I talked to him today about his medical practice, it's clear that one of the things that uh, most uh, interested him and, and satisfied him about his medical practice was the pastoral dimension of it. Mm. He was an old-style uh, general practice doctor who spent hours with his patients. Uh, mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, John Murray praying Edmund Clowney out of a problem, and my father would converse with people out of medical problems. Mm -hmm. They would come into his office complaining of some kind of, some kind of malady, and uh, he'd sit and talk with them for an hour, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't need anything by the time he was done. They just needed somebody to talk to. Fascinating. Uh, so he, that was my dad. My mother was a musician. Uh, she had taught piano before getting married, uh, came from a a home up in Michigan where her father was a, a Christian day school teacher in a Lutheran school in a small town in Michigan. Mm -hmm. uh, they met at college in Columbus, Ohio, which is where I grew up. Uh -huh. So I grew up in that in that setting and uh, very memorably influenced by my first pastor in the Lutheran church. My first uh, vocational aspiration, career aspiration, was to be a pastor comedian, uh, <laughs> trying to emulate my Lutheran pastor who was a good preacher, a good pastor, a good teacher, but was a practical joker. For, for many years, I thought my testimony, my, I don't remember not being a Christian. I loved Jesus. I loved the church. I loved the Bible and read it from an early age. Obviously, up and down times of everyone's life, but uh, I, I don't remember a time when I didn't know Jesus. Mm -hmm. For many years, I thought of that as kind of a, a lame testimony. I didn't have this, yeah. uh, I, you know, I, I didn't go through a, a drug addiction. Right. Gangster. Come, yeah, exactly. I've come. To, I've come to realize just what a testimony that is to the, to the grace of God that uh, He caught me early. Hmm. Actually, He was uh, at work long before I came along, generations before I came, mm -hmm. through my ancestors, mm. and uh, 
So I'm the beneficiary of generations of the Lord's work in mm. a particular family, yeah. which is a great testimony to His grace. Yes, and uh, do, you, do, you reckon, do you remember uh, uh, the equipping that you received at your, at your parents' knee as well in terms yeah. of uh, Bible orientation, catechizing? Yes, uh, yeah, they were very serious about that. They were faithful in getting me into church settings where I would learn the Bible. In the Lutheran church, there was a practice of catechetical classes that you'd take in the just the last couple of preteen years when you're 11 or 12 uh, in preparation for confirmation, mm-hmm. uh, which would be the beginning would be your first communion after confirmation. Uh, so I learned the uh, Lutheran shorter, smaller catechism as a boy. Mm. Phrases and parts of that still in my memory. Mm. My parents also sent me to a Christian school for my first six years. The Lutheran church that I grew up in had a had a parochial school, so I uh, got a, a Christian education during my early years mm. before going into uh, public schools, government schools mm. in my uh, junior and senior high school. Right. Yeah, but they were they were very serious in uh, trying to make sure that it. Uh, I wasn't just going to church, but to make sure that uh, I was learning God's word and living by it. Mm, fascinating. Interesting hearing of your father in the kind of the small town kind of uh, familial, friendly, gracious, conversational, pastoral mm. kind of way of do- being a physician. I was fascinated recently to meet a, a sweet uh, lady come up from uh, Sussex on one of our walks, told the story of how someone in her church an unremarkable lady in her church who I think she described as having learning difficulties mm. found a lady crying in their village mm. as she sat on a wall and this unremarkable woman invited her to church. The church then graciously welcomed her, befriended her, served her mm-hmm. and they found that she had been brought over to this country under false pretenses. She'd been told by a man who married her uh, everything had been untrue the age of the man, uh, the background of the man. When he had arrived in this country, he was arrested as he got off the plane. They moved in with this man's mother, who was uh, uh, similarly uh, wicked and unpleasant to this woman. But through the ministry of this church, she was welcomed in. She was given places to stay. She mm. was, was one of the families with whom she was living at that time was a doctor's family. Mm. There were brilliant lawyers in the congregation. Mm. And you found it was a beautiful picture mm. of what the church has always done mm. in the grassroots it mm-hmm. served. And mm-hmm. you think, if we were to try to have solved those problems <laughs> using government programs, yes. the money invested would have been massive mm-hmm. but also you people would have been doing it for a job right. and these people were doing it because of the motivation mm-hmm. of the gospel mm-hmm. and it was a beautiful thing all the way from mm-hmm. the story was quite moving as she t- mm-hmm. told me mm-hmm. the story because it was there was no one who was a superstar in it it mm-hmm. was just the church mm-hmm. and it's yes. a beautiful it's a beautiful little picture there. yes yes it certainly is uh, yeah that's a um you're you're uh you're speaking to the choir with that, with that story <laughs> yeah. uh, one of my uh, passions as a, in, a, in my writing as a theologian is to encourage exactly that kind of uh, service and ministry within local churches to mm. see the see the church as the as the place for the restoration not only of individual lives but uh, having uh, having an impact on the transformation of communities around them mm. uh, that uh, as every member of the church is contributing using gifts mm. build up the community within the church but that that itself becomes a kind of mission. Yes. Part of the mission. Amen. But, 
Quite right. Yeah. And your, your traces of the Trinity, fascinating. Yeah. I'm fascinated to see the... Um, I would put to you, as a British person, that in, this, uh, in the last 20, 20 years ago, we saw a lot of pragmatic stuff at the yeah. front of the Christian world. Yeah. It was essentially management techniques with verses stuck to it, or it was yeah. therapeutic stuff. But what's yeah. fascinating is as, we've, as a few more prominent Bible teachers have come to the fore, they've taught us that God has not just invited us because he's centered on us, but he's centered on himself. Yeah. And he invites us into that relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And you and your, uh, your book, Traces on the Trinity, I think it's a fascinating uh, introduction to yeah. that uh, yeah. priority. Yeah. Yes. That idea of being as communion. Yeah. Striking. I heard someone say, I think it was Zazulus who proposed that a person is the sum of their relationships, mm. which I think is a fascinating, uh, although there's a, there's a certain overstatement in it. Yes. There's something very fertile yeah. about that, especially for the yeah. church. Yeah. Now, in this city, we are, of course, surrounded by extraordinary uh, church history. Mm. But we find again and again, as we celebrate the great ones, mm-hmm. what did Jesus say about the great? He said, mm. if you're faithful with the small things, mm. you'll be faithful with the great yeah, also. Right. And we found again and again, as you look into the close life of a Newton, a John mm. Newton or of, mm. a, or of a Whitfield and read the letters of a Wesley and so on, you find again and again that they are caring for people who no one else mm. is is looking out mm. for. Mm. Now, in your experience, is there someone from church history who's been a particular companion, hero? Is there a group? Yeah, there, there's several people that uh, I would highlight as being inspirations for me. And again, my constitution is uh, as a theologian, naturally, and also my training. So my heroes tend to be theologians, theologians with particular orientation uh, to them. Um, Augustine, I read a, a good bit of Augustine when I was, when I was at uh, Cambridge doing my doctoral work. Uh, I had read Calvin and uh, been a Presbyterian minister before going to do the, my work in Cambridge and had read a little bit of Augustine, but um, partly because of the particular work I was doing, partly just to increase my knowledge of uh, great theologians, I read a, a good bit of Augustine there. And uh, one of the things that fascinates me about Augustine is this combination of the highest level of theological reflection and even theological speculation that you uh, can find in various parts of Augustine with a day-to-day life in the church. Mm. Um, mm. read a couple of biographies of Augustine, uh, Peter Brown's mm. wonderful Augustine of Hippo, and there are several other good biographies of Augustine. And uh, reading his theology wouldn't realize that he would have possibly had time <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to spend as a bishop of a significant community in, uh, in North Africa. Hmm. But uh, a lot of his time was spent uh, resolving interpersonal disputes among his congregants, teaching in the church. We have uh, records of sermon series that he did on various books of the Bible, and uh, just involved in the, in the pastoral care of, uh, of the churches of North Africa more generally. And once you realize that, then you can see that there's a there's a pastoral orientation even to his most speculative or high-level theologies. The mm-hmm. City of God is a, a book that really made a civilization. It's one of the few books you can say that uh, was a, an epical book. As Rome was collapsing in Europe and in North Africa, something new was coming to form, and that new thing that came to form medieval Christendom is significantly indebted to the work of Augustine, particularly in City of God. Mm. But you realize that the City of God is an answer to a pastoral question. <laughs> wow. And it's kind of a very long letter to somebody who asked him how to think about the, you know, Rome had just been taken by barbarians. You know, is the world coming to an end? It looks like the, the world as they knew it was certainly coming to an end. What does this mean? 
for the future of Christianity. And Augustine's answer is to give this panoramic history of the city of God and to answer that pastoral question, that, that live practical question with, the, with this very elaborated theology and a theological account of history. The other thing that Augustine, the reason I love Augustine is just the breadth of his writing. I love Calvin also, but Calvin is, if, if you pick up a treatise of Calvin, you know Calvin's writing theology mm-hmm. because he's dealing with theological topics, traditional theological topics. But you can pick up any number of Augustine's treatises or sections of Augustine. You don't know whether he's a, a philosopher of language or if he's a psychologist, a philosopher, a historian. Everything in the world uh, makes its way into Augustine's theology, so mm-hmm. there's, there's breadth to it. But with this, again, with this, uh, partly because of his setting, he's he's working within the church, and so when he's trying to answer these theological questions, he always has in mind how this is going to affect uh, his work as a bishop in the church and the direction of the church in general. So I've tried to um, try to take some cues from Augustine in that regard. Then I have a, a theologian's form of attention deficit disorder. I have a hard time staying on the same topic for very long. Yeah. But I've taken some comfort in knowing Augustine uh, was also doing a lot of different things. Also, the, having been a pastor and then being influenced by somebody like Augustine, tried to keep a kind of pastoral focus in my theology, trying to address questions, trying to treat theological questions in a way that will provide some kind of guidance for the church, and mm. for pastors, for church leaders, and so mm. on. Mm. Yes, so it's actually got a, it's got a therefore Correct. at yeah. the end of it. Yes, yeah. yes. I think the other, uh, the other theologian that I would mention from the past is uh, an American uh, Reformed theologian named John Williamson Nevin, who is not uh, real well known, even in the States. His uh, colleague, Philip Schaff, was probably better known. He's a church historian uh, and wrote a, a still popular uh, history of the Christian church, uh, or Schaff, S-C-H-A-F-F. Nevin was a, an associate of uh, Schaff in, uh, in the German Reformed Church, and they were part of a movement that was known as the Mercersburg Movement, named for a city in Pennsylvania. And uh, they, were a, they were Reformed theologians, but Reformed theologians that were attentive to the whole history and tradition of the Christian church, not just not just to the Reformed tradition. Mm-hmm. We're trying to look for insight and wisdom from the entirety of the Christian tradition. Uh, and they were also um, Reformed theologians who had sensitivity to uh, questions of liturgical and sacramental theology. Nevin got into a very famous dispute with uh, Charles Hodge, who was the Prince of Presbyterians at the time. He was the great Presbyterian theologian of the of the mid-19th century in the States. And uh, uh, Nevin and Hodge disputed about the question of the real presence. Uh-huh. Uh, Nevin taking uh, and defending Calvin's understanding, Hodge saying that the, uh, Calvin's doctrine of the real presence was uh, implausible and he preferred Swingley. Mm-hmm. So Nevin is a hero and a lot of the theological work I've done has had inspiration from the Mercerberg movement. Um, the, the kinds of issues that Nevin was dealing with in American Protestantism, revivalism, kind of manipulative techniques of, of evangelism, or you know trying to elicit conversions. Uh, this was the this was the time of the Second Great Awakening and Charles Finney, um, and Nevin was writing in opposition to that kind of manipulative hmm. uh, method of evangelism. Mm-hmm. So some of those some of those same issues that he was dealing with in the nineteenth century come to come to expression, I think, still in 
American Christianity, and so Nevin still has a lot to say to our contemporary situation. Mm. And it gave me a particular interest in, in, in seeing how the worship of the church is integral to the, uh, the life of the church more generally and also to the mission of the church. That's right. something that Nevin, Nevin focuses on. Yes, there's that, yeah, something you find in the, some of the great, the great servants of the church is how they, uh, they see um, a, a sort of seamlessness element, yes. life as worship yes. in a sense. Right. And one does think, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts, um, one does think that they are, some of them at their best, are helping to describe the contours of what it is to be a partaker of the divine nature which uh, I find a, a fascinating an, an invitation. Because <laughs> yes. we're, not, we're not just being told how to avoid hell. We're being told, uh, you can come and do what I do, which is, I love the Father. Come yeah. look at him. And yeah. the Father saying, come and look at my Son. And of course, yeah. in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I would be interested to hear, I wasn't necessarily going to ask you this, but I'm interested to hear, in light of what you said there, and in light of that kind of perspective, how would you tease out Paul's command to Timothy to be strong in the grace that is in our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. The reason I ask is I think we tend to treat grace almost like a, a safety net mm. in our time. Mm. And there's grace if, if you fail, you know. Mm. But essentially, we don't know about being strong in his grace. Mm. And, uh, but some of the, some, when you hear the gospel and you, when, when you are, uh, when you get it, I'm sorry, that's not very precise, but when, when it strikes you, when you see the gospel, you realize it's all grace. Mm-hmm. So how would you tease out? Have you got any thoughts on that verse particularly? Yeah, that's, that's a, a wonderful phrase and mm. uh, you know, a wonderful thing. I, I, I agree with you that I think there's a, there's a tendency in, in some sectors of the church to see grace as, uh, as, as you said, as, as a safety net. Maybe I, can, maybe I can put it in terms of what you were saying about being partakers of the divine nature. First of all, part of the problem I think when we think about grace is that we tend to think of it as in a in kind of as a kind of abstraction, as mm. as a kind of stuff, maybe a power. Augustine uh, talks about love as the name of the Holy Spirit, mm. a gift as the name of the Holy Spirit. I think we can, taking Romans five, talk about grace as uh, if not a name of the Holy Spirit, at least uh, the grace of God is poured out in our heart through the through the Holy Spirit, at least as. Uh, the operation of the Spirit. So when we're talking about grace, we're not talking about something that's somehow distant from or abstracted from the presence of the Spirit with us. Yes. But rather, it's the the Spirit at work in us, and the Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. He's a person of the Trinity who guides, leads, speaks, is as grieved, and so on. Yes. So to, to when when you start thinking about uh, the phrase you mentioned, that be, be strong in the strong in grace. It's talking about being filled with the strength of the Holy Spirit, being strong in grace. And I'm, again, I go back to your comments about being partakers of the divine nature. We're, we're called into communion with God, but the God into whose communion we're called is a God who sends his son into the world. Mm. If we're joined to Jesus Christ by the Spirit, then we're joined in, in fellowship with these persons who are being sent mm. uh, and being sent to accomplish God, the Father's purposes in the world. And we can't be incorporated into that grace into that fellowship without being participants in that in that mission if we're truly called in that fellowship then we're sent out so i think that being strong in the grace would also involve that that work of the spirit in us to to uh particularly with timothy's called to a pastoral ministry to share in the mission of the spirit to mm-hmm. be a partaker 
mm. in the divine nature in that sense as right. we're mission. Just one last one last thought on that. One of the one of the concerns um, we have at our institute, we're try, trying to do pastoral training training for leaders in in the church, whether lay or ordained ministers, uh, leaders in the church at the Theopolis Institute. And one of the concerns we have is to recognize the the challenges and the well the, the, the qualities that you need in order to be a minister of the gospel. Mm-hmm. I think it's particularly the case in our current cultural climate. Pastors who are not courageous, pastors who are not strong in the grace of God, pastors aren't filled with the Spirit, so they they're sent in the Spirit, are just not equipped to uh, minister in this kind of climate. And we have this tendency to think of ministers as uh, caregivers, they're kind of helping profession. The biblical picture is much more maybe militant, manly, aggressive. Jesus calls pastors to be shepherds, and a shepherd is somebody who's willing to stand between the wolf and the sheep. Hmm. Uh, that takes courage and strength. Uh, somebody who's willing to give his life for the sake of the sheep. So um, I think that's a that's a good summary statement of one mm. one aspect of we're trying to what we're trying to communicate to our students at Theopolis. It is that is rare. Those are rarely heard words. You're right mm. in our time. Mm. We frequently feel that we are on on the back foot, rather than to be, to be taking taking the game to the uh, to the opposition in a sense. Mm. Yes, yes, and that is something we see in the great heroes of our of our own church history. Mm-hmm. So now, um, Dr. Lighthouse, what's new with you? What's uh, what's on the horizon? Well, I'm excited about some of the developments of the Theopolis Institute. Um, apart from my uh, my personal writing and so on. Um, We've been, uh, we're in the middle of our fifth year of operation and uh, we've been doing um, a variety of different kinds of programs and uh, we've come to the point where we're thinking seriously about uh, the kind of personnel we need, the kind of programs we need as we move into the future. I, I started the Institute when I was in my uh, early 50s, I guess, and my colleague, James Jordan, who's worked with me since the beginning, was in his mid-60s. So as soon as we started, we started thinking, we need to get some younger guys in here. And uh, mm-hmm. this institute has to have a future, and it's not going to be, we're not going to be with it forever. So we've got some things in development in that regard that I think are very exciting. And uh, um, part of my excitement is with that project, uh, that, uh, with the institute. And uh, I'm very hopeful that we uh, will be able to accomplish our, mm. our aims as we uh, bring in some talented younger people and as we redesign some of our programs. Mm. Um, in my own uh, research and writing, I, I came to the end of a couple of uh, large projects recently and, and just published a commentary on Revelation mm. that came out uh, at the beginning of this year, published by T.T. Clark. have uh, finished a manuscript of a commentary on First and Second Chronicles that I had worked on for several years. Mm. That will be a, in the Brazos Theological Commentary series. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I cleared the decks of those projects and have uh, been sort of in between things, but I have a, a couple of other uh, a couple other things on the horizon. One of them that I'm, I'm just getting started with, but I'm looking forward to digging into is a theology of creation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm, there are several different things I want to want to do with that. I'm, there's a, a lot of debates on the early chapters of Genesis among evangelicals these days about the questions about, creation and evolution, uh, historical Adam, those sorts of things. And I'll, I'll, I'll address those in the course of the book. But one of my concerns is that we're, we're sometimes distracted from uh, some of the theological import of those chapters right. because we're caught up in the polemics. Right. The polemics are important. I don't mean to, I don't mean to diminish them. Uh, and I do have positions on them. But 
I want to try to tease out what the early chapters of Genesis say about uh, certain kinds of uh, certain theological questions, and partly because um, if we misconstrue what uh, or, or fail to get the import of, of the uh, creation account, uh, then that sets our whole understanding of Scripture kind of askew, and, and our whole theology gets set off from the beginning. Mm. We need to get those chapters right. Yes. I have a, a colleague from New St. Andrews College where I, I used to teach theology who said that theology is like a, a clothesline that's between the two posts of cre- uh, protology and eschatology, between creation and uh, the last things. And if we if those are wobbly or bent, then the clothesline doesn't. <laughs> mm. you, you can't hang, hang anything on it. It'll just collapse. Hmm. So I want to address some of those theological questions uh, from... It'll be exegetically founded, but I, I want to try to use the work of the on the on the text to try mm. to address mm. theological questions again with the, with the idea that uh, getting the first steps of our theology off on the right foot is uh, is crucial for getting our whole theology right. Mm. It's fascinating. I, was, I heard recently of a, a pastor in the name of Andrew King leads a church up in um, in North London. Someone approached him and said. Um, uh, I'm thinking of, I don't know anything about Christianity, but I'd like to talk to you as a pastor. And he asked, where do you stand on creation and evolution? Mm-hmm. And Andrew thought, well, this will probably be a short conversation. And he says, I, the Bible says this. Mm-hmm. And so I stand on that. Mm-hmm. The man then said, where do you stand on uh, gender? And he said, this is, <laughs> and then he said, where do you stand on homosexuality? Mm-hmm. And so when Andrew said, well, I stand on what the Bible says, and it says this, yeah. that actually led the man to say, well, I'd like to talk to you some more because you've just told me something which is very different to yeah. the culture yeah. and you therefore have something to right. say. Right. That guy since made a profession of faith. And mm. I think it's an interesting yeah. thing, yeah. as you say, yeah. if, you, if you don't have you know, a, a good understanding of who Adam is, how can you possibly understand Romans? If you can't understand right. Romans, how can you understand the gospel? Yeah. Right. And so on. Yeah, and I think the, the gender issues are a good example of the kind of thing that I want to do in this uh, Theology of Creation book. It's not that I'm going to focus on the contemporary cultural issues. But I think behind those contemporary cultural confusions, which are just massive, mm-hmm. <laughs> as you know, mm-hmm. are, are just a basic misunderstandings about what it means to be human and the goodness of the human body, you know, the divine design of our human bodies and of our sexuality. Mm-hmm. So it's not surprising that you have you know, a couple of centuries of Darwinian teaching about origins and then you know, we wake up one day and we're confused about yeah. uh, male and female. Well, Quite. of course we are. <laughs> Yes, fascinating. And uh, finally, um, it'd be fascinated to hear your advice. I don't know if you'd like to advise church planters or generally things you may have seen happening recently. You think I or yeah. something you wish you'd known? Yeah, uh, some part of what I would want to exhort uh, church leaders to is something we've touched on already, which is uh, faithfulness and courage in the midst of challenging cultural situation. Mm. It's somewhat different in the states than it is here in England. But I think in both locations, it's no longer, you can no longer safely lean on the culture to carry your Christian convictions. Uh, I think in the States, we've been able to do that somewhat longer. In places like Alabama, which still has a strong Christian presence, there's still an inertia left where the, the way people live just kind of carries you along in a, in a more Christian, uh, at least moral direction. But that we can't never should lean on that for one thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're no longer have the luxury to do so. Mm-hmm. And pastors need to be ready not only to meet that challenge, to be willing to resist the very powerful forces of uh, public opinion, uh, the very 
powerful forces of public ridicule, mm. uh, but also be training their congregations and, and teaching their congregations that they need to be prepared for resistance. Mm. I don't mean any kind of uh, mm. armed uprising. I mean faithful witness. I thought a lot about uh, witness and martyrdom over the last few years as I've been working on Revelation, where martyrdom is a key key question. Martyrdom doesn't necessarily be mean being killed for your witness, but it does mean ris- risking loss for your witness. Mm. And that's something that all Christians are called to. Mm. And that's going, that is already a reality for Christians in this country to a lesser extent in the States. I believe it's going to become more of a reality and I'm not sure that Christians in general are prepared for that and I uh, think it's the responsibility of, of leaders particularly to prepare congregations for that. Okay. Um, yeah. the, the other thing, I, this, is a, this might seem like a, a non sequitur or a, a side issue, but was asked this question at a conference at Wheaton College some years ago. Uh, what would you encourage churches to do? What would be the first thing you'd encourage pastors to do? My answer was, I'd encourage them to, uh, as as soon as they can, to convince their congregation to have weekly celebration of communion. Mm-hmm. And after you begin to do it, figure out what it's doing to you and how it's affecting your community life. Don't wait till you figure out <laughs> what it's going to do ahead of time. Start doing it. I think that, that act has um, historically been the a central part of Christian worship. Let's go back to our brief uh, comments about gender. This, In my mind, this is related to our whole conception of creation. You can't celebrate regular communion with bread and wine without realizing that material things are means of communion with God. Uh, that puts uh, the world right in the middle of our worship service. The bread doesn't fall from heaven like it did for Israel in the wilderness. Wine doesn't you know, come springing out of rocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has to be made, and they're material things. And there's an a, a, an understanding of creation that I think is inherent in the celebration of communion, and that uh, is kind of inculcated into people as they do it regularly, uh, and as they're taught what they're what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be just one example. So, I, in my mind, this is again seems like a non sequitur, but in my mind, there's a relationship between weak understanding of creation confusion about gender and the church's uh, neglect of uh, regular participation in communion. Mm. Those are all part of our engagement with creation, the the good creation that God made, and our recognition that we, we commune with God through through His creation. Mm. It's given to us as His gift to us and as a gift that uh, that draws us into fellowship with Him. Fascinating. Well, that's fascinating. Who wouldn't, as you say, it seems like a non-secretary, but you're <laughs> proclaiming the, the Lord's death you're engaging with <laughs> you're engaging with physical things yes. as a community yes. and as you come together as together as we come to him he's building us together right and, right exactly uh, yes. and we, we are encouraged potentially and hopefully in bold witness in so doing well it's been fantastic to have this time with you Peter wonderful to be with you Ben thank you thank you so much for more episodes of the Christian Heritage London podcast And for information on Christian Heritage London events, tours and walks, please go to christianheritagelondon.org.